Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim Morrow, and I'm a member here. Today's reading is found in Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is God's word for us today. Morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I serve as an elder candidate here, and I have the privilege of bringing our message this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer before we dive in. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people this morning, to quiet our hearts, to come to your word where we find sustenance, hope, and truth. God, I pray for clarity this morning, clarity of speech and explanation for me, clarity of understanding and thought for all of us. I pray that you would help us to see this morning that our ultimate hope and confidence is in you and in you alone. I pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. About 10 years ago, my family was enjoying a routine evening at home. We had either just eaten dinner or were preparing dinner, and the kids were playing. Obviously, our four kids were much younger. Caleb wasn't here yet. Um, we hadn't been blessed with him uh, at that point in time. But a routine evening, running around the house. In particular, Elijah, our oldest son, and Maddie, our oldest daughter, were, were running in circles around the first floor. And they decided to start going in opposite ways. And in an instant, that routine evening was abruptly interrupted by a collision. And in that moment, I turned to Maddie first, thinking that she would be the one that had bore the brunt of that collision. But to my surprise, she was largely unscathed, thankfully. And then I turned my gaze to Elijah. And I saw what still to date is probably the most gruesome head wound I have ever witnessed in my life. 
perhaps you can relate, and you've seen those types of wounds that when you see them, you know this needs some help. <laughs> this is not something a Band-Aid will fix. And so in that moment, I sought hope and help from the place where I knew I could find it, and that was the people on the other end of a 911 call. Times of danger and threat have a way of revealing where our hope and confidence lie. Times of crisis have a way of bringing to the surface and exposing who or where we are placing our hope. In Psalm 17, David, the famous king of Israel, is facing threat and danger from his enemies. We don't know who exactly. We don't know if King Saul is in view here or other enemies that we know were chasing him at various points throughout his life. But we do know that in the midst of this threat and danger in Psalm 17, David seeks God's rescue from his enemies because God is his ultimate hope and confidence. And so this morning, the primary claim that I want to advance to us for our benefit, flowing from Psalm 17, is this, that we must look to Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in flesh, for rescue from our enemies because he is our ultimate hope and confidence. I'll read that one more time. We must look to Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for rescue from our enemies because he is our ultimate hope and confidence. As Christians here this morning, if you've trusted in Christ and your faith is in him, we have the benefit of looking back in time, of seeing what all God has brought about through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and restoration. And this morning, what I want us to see from Psalm 17, as we apply it through the lens of the gospel, is that our hope and confidence in Christ must shape the way that we respond when our enemies seek our destruction and downfall. Let me just take a moment here to acknowledge, I think, an important thing. If you are here this morning, and you've never placed your hope in Christ, and your ultimate hope and confidence is not in the good news of what Christ has done through his life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection, that I want to bring you this hope this morning through the scriptures that your only hope is Christ. Your only hope against some of the enemies that we'll talk about in just a bit, sin, Satan, death, is Christ alone. So my hope is that as we go through this sermon this morning, you will see this hope by God's grace more and more clearly. I think we can better understand this primary claim and what it means for us by exploring three questions this morning about Psalm 17. Three questions that I think will unpack what exactly this looks like for Christ to be our only rescue because he is our hope and confidence. And the first question that we'll ask is this, why is David so concerned about his enemies in Psalm 17? What's the big deal? What's so threatening and dangerous about them? And if you have your, your Bible with you, which, which I hope you do, uh, and it's turned to Psalm 17, I just want to guide us through some of the descriptions that David uses to describe his enemies. And we can get a sense of why exactly David is so concerned about them. Verse 9 they are the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. They speak arrogantly. Verse 11, they set their eyes 
to cast us to the ground. Verse 12, he, the enemies, is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. If you were David in that circumstance, you would be equally concerned about these enemies. These are not friendly descriptions. These are threatening, dangerous descriptions. And the question, Christian, I have for you this morning is this. Do you have enemies like this? You might be tempted at first glance, as, as I have been, to look at a psalm like this and to think, I've never been in that spot. I've never faced these kinds of threatening and dangerous enemies like David is facing here. But I think when we take a second glance and we look at the New Testament, there are some distinct, specific enemies of a Christian that are described in ways that are interestingly similar to Psalm 17. Let me lay some of those out for you right after I take a sip. There are three enemies I want to draw our attention to that the New Testament speaks to that we as Christians do face as real threats, real dangers of the same likeness and description as Psalm 17. The first is this, persecutors, those who would oppose the Christian faith, who would oppose those or persecute those who seek to live lives that are in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about persecutors to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. Listen to what he says here. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Persecution, opposition to the gospel is a reality for the Christian life. Christ himself said so. Now, I want to acknowledge here just for a moment that by comparison to our brothers and sisters across the world, relatively speaking, in our place and in our time and in our circumstances, much of the opposition and persecution we may face in an average sense is relatively minimal compared to what brothers and sisters are facing across the globe. Nevertheless, we will still face opposition of some kind, persecution of some kind, if we are truly seeking to walk that narrow road of the cross following Christ. And this persecution can potentially come from a lot of different places. It can come from society at large, from our government, maybe from an employer, even friends and family, maybe even within a church context. Among other things, there are certain ways of obeying the Lord that can bring opposition and persecution. Let me walk through some examples. One example would be refusing to adopt default societal views on any number of issues that bring us scorn and opposition as people rise up against us because we're not quick to embrace or embracing at all those social views that folks would, would advocate as the prevailing ways to look at our world. Opposition and persecution could also come through refusal to obey the government when they are requiring, when what they are requiring clearly, when I emphasize that word, clearly contradicts what God has called us to. Or refusing to engage in lying or deceptive practices in our place of employment that maybe our supervisors want us to engage in. 
or refusing to abide by additional rules and expectations in a church context that actually contradict what the scriptures actually say and oppose what Christ has conveyed. It could also mean refusing to place the expectations of family members and friends above obedience to God. Obedience to the Lord, obedience to Christ can be met with, will be met with, persecution and opposition. That's one very real and present enemy that the New Testament talks about for us as believers. The second is within us, our own sinful nature, our flesh as the scriptures describe it. Paul describes the sinful nature and the flesh that rises up within us when he writes his letter to the Romans, Romans 13 verses 12 through 14. Here's what Paul says about the enemy of our sinful nature. He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The reality here this morning is that within each of us, there is a very real and present enemy of the sinful nature that rises up in response to temptation, that seeks to do what is contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whereas persecution can ebb and flow, it can change over time, of course, this enemy abides within us because it's residing in us. And then lastly, we have Satan himself. And listen to Peter's description of Satan in 1 Peter 5, 8. It should take us back to Psalm 17. As Tim read it, there was, of course, some, some profound imagery that David's using to describe his enemies that shows up here as well. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It reminds us of that lion lurking, waiting to tear that David uses to describe his enemies. Satan is the ultimate enemy and accuser who constantly seeks our destruction and spiritual downfall. So what I want us to see this morning, church, is that we do actually have very real, very present enemies that should concern us in the same way, and, and arguably even more so, than what David is facing in Psalm 17. And that leads us to our second question of Psalm 17, and that is this. Why is God the ultimate hope and confidence of David? Why, why is God the ultimate hope and confidence of David? There are many places to turn for hope and for help. Not that you would find it, of course, but a lot of different ways someone could go. I mentioned earlier that times of threat and danger have a way of revealing where you are placing your hope and your confidence. There are a lot of options. So why is it for David in Psalm 17 that his ultimate hope and confidence is in God himself? And we see David describing it, that God is the only one who brings hope and satisfaction in this life and beyond. Some commentators have noted that David recognizes that even if God doesn't deliver him from this present moment and these present enemies, that God himself will provide ultimate deliverance beyond the grave. We see David 
contrasting himself with his enemies in a way that brings this to light, in a way that highlights David's ultimate hope that God himself will provide eternal rescue and ultimate salvation from his enemies. In verse 14, David describes his enemies as having their portion in this life. They have no portion beyond the grave. There is no hope for them beyond the grave. And then he contrasts that with himself in verse 15. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. He's speaking to God. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For David, and for us, and for anyone, God is the ultimate hope and confidence for rescue from enemies. And it's fascinating because in this text, we see that that hope is not just a theoretical thing for David. It actually impacts the way that he functions. It impacts the way that he lives. It makes its way into his appeal to God for rescue. Look at the way David describes himself as he's making his appeal to God and how his belief that God is his ultimate hope and confidence has impacted his following after him. He says in verse 1, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Verse 2, Let your eyes behold the right. In verse 3, You have tried my heart, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. The very next verse, By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. And then finally in verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. Here for David, the fact that God is his ultimate hope and confidence impacts the way that David operates. It impacts what he does. It impacts how he walks. So here's my question to you this morning, church. Are we remembering why Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is our only hope and confidence as we encounter the enemies of persecution, our own sinfulness, and Satan himself. And just in case we're not, and if you're like me, you need those reminders of why Christ is our ultimate hope in the face of these enemies. Let me give you some things to remember. The first is this. With regard to persecution and opposition to the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ suffered the ultimate persecution and brought us forgiveness and eternal life through it. He knows what it's like. Christ himself knows what it is like to face the ultimate opposition and persecution, and he's able to use it for the glory and good of those who follow him. Listen to, what, to the way that the author of Hebrews describes this beautiful truth, that Christ himself knows what it is like in a very ultimate and supreme sense to face hostility and opposition, and then to also work good in his glory through it. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, three through seven. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons. And ultimately, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we will be delivered from persecution. We will be delivered from opposition. Our brothers and sisters across the globe who are facing persecution of the likes that we have never seen will ultimately be delivered one day because of the finished work of Christ brought through his own suffering, brought through the persecution that he underwent as he sacrificed himself for the sins of those who believe. With regard to temptation, which we all face, Christ too knows what it's like to be tempted, but he has never sinned. Rather, he's defeated sin, something that no one else can do or has done. Likewise, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And in a very similar way, speaking to Christ's overcoming of sin for us, to be freed from the bonds of it, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then lastly, with regard to that ultimate enemy that the New Testament speaks of, Satan himself, the, the great accuser of the brethren, Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death, has defeated Satan, that ultimate enemy. One pastor describes it well when he says, quote, "'Indeed, accusation is the chief activity for Satan.'" He attempted to undermine God's righteous verdict over Job, stood ready to accuse Joshua the high priest, and accused all believers before God day and night. The power of sin is the law, and Satan attempted to use the demands of the law to destroy God's people, but Christ, and taking the law's curse on himself, has wrested this weapon from Satan. We are no longer under condemnation no longer under, under any rightful accusation of sins completed that have now been forgiven by the grace and mercy of Christ, brought about through his life, death, and resurrection. So, friends, this morning, Jesus Christ is our ultimate hope and confidence because he knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to be tempted by evil, and he's defeated sin, and he's defeated Satan. For David, his hope and confidence in God impacted the way that he called to God for rescue. And that brings us to our last question of this text. How does, get, how does David call for God's rescue here? As we look at how David makes his appeal to God, we see that resting behind it is this great truth that we've already talked about, that for David and for us, God is his ultimate hope and confidence, but I want to give some attention here to how exactly David's making his plea, how it exactly reflects what David believes about God as his ultimate hope and confidence. I think we could summarize David's plea in this way, hear me, see me, save me, God. Look at some of the descriptions here of David's appeal to God, where you can see the confidence that he has in God. My time might be up. Um, but the, the confidence that he has in God bursting forth to the surface. Look at verse 1. David says, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. Verse 6, 
Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And then verse 13. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. David's pleas are intense. David's pleas are passionate. David's pleas are persistent, confident, reflecting that ultimate hope that he has of an ultimate deliverance through the God that he's trusting in. And why? Because he knows the one who he's seeking help from. Christian, is your response when you face the kinds of enemies I described earlier like this? Is your response to enemies of various kinds, persecution, your own sinfulness, and response to temptation, sinful desires rising up in you, Satan's accusations against you, is your response like this, passionate, persistent, intense, bold, reflecting the confidence that we as believers can have in God incarnate Jesus Christ? Or when you face these enemies, when you face persecution, are you tempted to seek personal vengeance and retribution against persecutors, taking it upon yourself to exact some sense of justice or retribution? When you face opposition for living for Christ, are you tempted to back away from your convictions, attempted to step back from that confidence in order to appease maybe an employer, in order to appease maybe a family member who has expectations for you that are different than the gospel calls you to? Or are you seeking God's rescue and help, acknowledging his sovereignty over the situation, his use of it for your good, if you're a believer, and his ultimate eternal deliverance from persecution one day? I think we can ask the same thing about temptation and sinful desires. When you face temptation and sinful desires rise up in you, what is your response? Are you tempted to pretend that these enemies don't exist? Are you tempted to pretend that your sinfulness and the temptations you face aren't really that big of a deal, easy to excuse, easy to minimize? Or are you diligently asking the Lord to help you battle against your flesh and to pursue godliness? And when Satan accuses you for past sins that have been forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, are you asking for the Lord to help remind you of what is true about who you are in Christ if you have placed your faith in him? No longer under condemnation, free from accusation because of what Christ has done. The right response this morning and anytime is to seek Christ's help and intervention with intensity, passion, and persistence because he is our ultimate hope and confidence. And in those difficult moments when we feel tempted to turn somewhere else for hope or for help, places where we will never find it, may our response be like the Apostle Peter's in the New Testament. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
that you are our ultimate hope and confidence. At first glance, a psalm like Psalm 17 may seem foreign to us. Obviously, our historical context is very different from David's, but God, there are truths here that we thank you for, that you have uh, given to us through Psalm 17 that have been fleshed out in the larger context of the scriptures and the New Testament and in the gospel of Jesus Christ that help us to see that we, in fact, do and will, as Christians, face very real, very present, very threatening enemies. God, when we do, and we will, even today, God, help us. Help us to find our ultimate hope and confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who alone has provided all that we need for life and for godliness. God, help us. Help us in our battle against sin and temptation to seek help in the midst of that threat and danger from Christ and Christ alone and to do so passionately, vigorously. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Amen.